Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham. Welcome to episode 33 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. On this week's episode, I want to tackle a question that I've been asked many times over the years, and that is, can a Christian lose their salvation? More on that later. But first, I've been asked about the Bible and divorce, and particularly how to deal with feelings of guilt following a divorce. Let's find out. And I do want to kind of say here that I think that the church has really began to well begun to grow up uh, in this area. I remember when I first became a Christian in the late 70s and early 80s, and particularly when I went to Bible college, became a pastor, and started going to pastors' conferences, and, and some of the early conferences in the 80s and, and even through some of the 90s, the ongoing arguments about divorce, divorce and remarriage, and could a person be in leadership if they were divorced? Could a person be in leadership if they were divorced and remarried? All of these questions and 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 endless arguments about this. And, you know, I think it's good to have theological debate, but we've got to remember that, that these things aren't just issues, right? All of these things are people, and we've got to remember that. And, and we believe in, in the love of God, you know, the love of God, endures forever. God's love never fails, the Bible tells us. And so we, we've got to remember all of that and bring grace and mercy and kindness into, into all of our discussions. And so I think sometimes the guilt of, say, a divorce uh, has come in because of some of the legalistic teaching and arguments about this in time past. So that's a bit of background. The question is a really interesting question. And uh, the person says, thank you for your Tuesday evening teaching and learning. Rob, although it's been nearly 30 years since my divorce, whenever I come to parts in the Bible about divorce, I struggle with it. Although my decision wasn't easy, please, are you able, if possible, to talk about divorce, guilt, etc.? Many thanks. So here we go. And thank you for your great question. I really appreciate it. The matter of divorce and remarriage, as I mentioned a moment ago, has been a controversial issue. And, uh, and, and I don't know that it is as controversial now as it was in time past. And as I say, I think the church has probably uh, grown up, matured a little in this area. And now, of course, we just pick on different people, not on divorced people anymore. So I'm going to make a number of statements which I think are really important to set the scene for this. And my first statement is this. If you are divorced and or remarried, you are not a second-class Christian. I think that is such an important place to start our discussion. If you are divorced or remarried, you are not a second-class Christian. Secondly, nowhere does the Bible state that divorce is a sin. I've Look, correct me if I'm wrong, please. If you can think of a verse, please let me know. I have dug through the Bible and uh, Googled and done all sorts of stuff trying to find 
a Bible verse where it actually says that divorce is a sin. I couldn't find one. If you can find one, as I say, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. I don't want to get that wrong. The outworking of divorce could be sinful. So, for example, uh, a divorce may happen because of marital unfaithfulness. So the person that was unfaithful to their marriage covenant and their marriage partner has been guilty of sin, but divorce in and of itself. I can't find a verse in the Bible where it says that it's sinful. Um, Divorce is probably not sinful in and of itself, and it's certainly not the unforgivable sin, as I've heard some people preach. However, this should not be used as an excuse to escape from a marriage covenant. The third thing I'll say here is that God hates divorce, and he tells us that in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16. And I think it's good to ask us why. Why does God hate divorce? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's because divorce breaks a covenant. It's more than a contract. I I don't refer to marriage as a contract. It's a covenant. It's an agreement that, that two parties make with each other to the exclusion of all others. And divorce also causes much pain and hardship. And so I think God hates divorce because he knows what it does to people. It's painful. I've never chatted with anyone who's gone through a divorce who actually enjoyed the process. Nobody. And I've asked a lot of people over the years. So they hated it. It was awful. It was a dreadful time. It was a dark time. Uh, It was onerous, difficult. So no one has ever told me, gee, that was a lot of fun. Let's do this again. The fourth comment is God is a divorcee. And this is an incredibly freeing truth because I think if you are a divorcee, to know that God has actually gone through this experience personally could be a very liberating truth. Uh, he tells us this in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. And so in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Tanakh, it's a, the relationship that exists between God and Israel is a marriage covenant. In fact, uh, the Ten Commandments are a marriage covenant agreement that God is bringing Israel as a nation into with himself. And so he marries the nation, but then they're unfaithful to him, not just once or twice, but over and over and over again by uh, believing in and worshipping and following other gods. And so eventually he has enough. And he says here in Jeremiah 3.8, Israel's faithless. And so I gave her a certificate of divorce and I sent her away because she's constantly adulterizing and uh, and she is faith, faithless. Um, and then, of course, he's talking to Judah and the verse goes on. He says, yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. So I don't know, maybe he divorced Judah as well. Um, number five, divorce is not God's ideal. And this is kind of stating the obvious here because, I'm, again, it kind of gets back to the fact that many people all people I've spoken to who have got divorced hated the whole process. So divorce is not God's ideal, but we don't live in an ideal world. God's ideal, I believe, is marriage 
between two people uh, for life and um, that's why the marriage covenant or the vows include the words, till death we do part. But we know that for any number of reasons, some marriages don't last a lifetime uh, and some do and some marriages probably feel like a lifetime. Christy and I, by the way, we're coming up to 28 years. Now, I know compared with some of you who are watching this or listening to it, uh, you've been married for a whole lot longer than that, but we're pretty excited about that. So on the 15th of January next year, I've actually booked a little escape for me and Christy for a couple of days and uh, just to take her away for our 28th anniversary, which is going to be wonderful. Um, Australian divorce rates are interesting. They peaked uh, at one point at, on the right at the end of World War II. So I don't know what caused that. Maybe it was um, you know the guys coming home from war and um, post-traumatic stress and all that, you know, what used to be called shell shock. Uh, maybe that created um, a lot or people getting married during the war and then realising, actually, don't want to be married to you. So divorce peaked after World War II and then it, then it went in decline. It peaked again in 1976 in Australia when no-fault divorce was introduced. Uh, but ever since 1976, divorce rates in Australia have been in steady decline and they're still declining, uh, which is wonderful, although I think part of that is probably because fewer people are actually getting married these days, uh, more people uh, are going into uh, co habiting or de facto relationships. But I suppose, you know, it's still a percentage. So the percentage of divorces are a lot less than they used to be, which I think is good news. When questioned about divorce, Jesus took his questioners right back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And he said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And he took people right back to the beginning for God's original plan for marriage. Now, I want to focus for a moment here on verse 7 of Matthew 19, uh, where the Pharisees that are questioning Jesus about all of this say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And I want you to notice here uh, a, a number of statements or two statements in particular. First of all, to put her away and, and then the second one, from the beginning it was not so. But to put her away, I want you just to notice those words for a moment and I'm going to come back to those. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 24 uh, verses 1 to 4, which is what these guys are quoting from. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after, after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her husband, her second husband, dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies 
then her first husband, who has divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. Now, what I want you to notice here is that this, all of these statements in Matthew and also in Deuteronomy are skewed in favour of the man. And I believe that's something that Jesus is trying to address as well in Matthew chapter 19. So look at those things. In Matthew uh, 19, uh, to put her away. And then in Deuteronomy 24, the woman's displeasing to him. He finds something indecent about her, which, which really is very generic, isn't it? It's almost like, let's think of something, yeah, that'll do, just so I can get rid of this woman. That's kind of the inference here. Um, and then, of course, he writes her the certificate of divorce, sends her away. Women had no rights, very few rights back in the day. Um, many of them were not employed. That's why many women would turn to prostitution because it was the one of the very few ways that she could actually be gainfully employed. Um, and and so she then gets married to this second guy, but somewhere down the track he dislikes her, and so he writes this certificate of divorce, and now she's defiled because she's been married to two men, and so her first husband can't take her back. She's basically now doomed to uh, a life of abject poverty. And so... It, in these verses, it's patriarchal. It's all about the bloke. And so what Jesus is doing here is actually balancing the score in favour of women. He's saying, okay, in time past, the men were here and the women were there. Let's do this, shall we, and bring in some equality. So I think that's a really important thing to add to this discussion. So the Bible gives three instances where separation, divorce, and or a subsequent remarriage are acceptable because all three break the covenant of marriage. And I've called them the three A's, and they are adultery, abandonment, and abuse. So let's spend a bit of time exploring each one of these things. Adultery, first of all, which would include sexual immorality and unfaithfulness inside a marriage covenant. And Jesus says this, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so that's number one, uh, adultery. The person who is free to remarry here, by the way, is the victim of the unfaithfulness, not the culprit. Also, Jesus is particularly condemning the actions of a person who commits adultery divorces and then marries the person that they had the adulterous affair with. A person must not commit adultery in order to get out of a marriage, in order to marry somebody else. And so that's marital unfaithfulness or adultery. The second A is abandonment. And Paul offers some insight here uh, to believers with an unbelieving partner, particularly in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15. And he says this, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, 
they are holy. And then this is the last verse of that passage. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And so what we find there is that the person who has been abandoned is not bound in circumstances, not bound by their marriage covenant. They're released from it, and then they are free to subsequently remarry uh, should they choose to do so sometime down the track. The final of the three A's is abuse. And I've got to say to you up front, it absolutely sickens me the number of times that I have heard over the years of pastors, priests, counsellors, Christian ministers recommending women to stay uh, particularly women here. I'm not saying that men do not suffer from uh, domestic abuse, but it is more commonly experienced by women at the hands of a man. And when when uh, I hear pastors or priests, ministers, counsellors, whatever, say to the woman, stay with your husband, even though he's physically or verbally or emotionally abusive, stay with him. Can I say... Upfront, I completely disagree with that advice, and particularly if there is violence. Um, but any sort of abuse, I don't think that a person should stay in an abusive relationship. I think you should get out of there as quickly as you possibly can and seek help to do that. Ephesians chapter 5 is interesting on this, verses 21 to 33, and it, and it first of all makes it very clear that submission is to be mutual. Heard many times over the years men quoting, you know, wives submit to your husbands, wives submit to your husbands. <clears throat> We've got to take this in context, and you pick it up from verse 21, which is the beginning of this section, and look at what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so in a relationship, in a marriage relationship, there are two people who should submit to one another, okay? In a heterosexual marriage, which Paul is talking about here, he's saying that um, husband and wife are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in the following verses, he he shows the men how they're to submit to their wives, and then he shows the women how they're to submit to their husbands. And then he says, well, actually, you know, I'm just using this as an illustration to show the relationship that exists between Jesus and his church. And so in those verses, I'll just summarise them for you here. Um, uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And these verses grip me. Can I say as well, if you're, if you're in a heterosexual marriage, um, read the verses that apply to you, all right? So, uh, you know, guys, don't be reading the verses that apply to your wife and say, well, look at that, you know, you've got to respect me. And women, don't read the verses that apply to your man and quote those at him, okay? We just need to read our own verses. So my verses are, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a big call. How did Jesus love the church? Well, my goodness, unconditionally, sacrificially. 
And so that's how I am to love Christy. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Each one of you must love your wife or love his wife as he loves himself. And then there's one command to the wife. Wives must respect her husband. The wife must respect her husband. And so that's mutual submission there. And I've never met a woman who wouldn't respect a man who loved her like Paul just described there. And love and respect don't beat each other up. There is no room for abuse in any relationship. And so these three things, uh, uh, adultery, abandonment and abuse, break the marriage covenant. And so if one of these exists in your marriage or in the marriage of someone you know, Here's some things that I would suggest. Number one, separation uh, it could be advisable, at least temporarily. It's a little bit like, you know, the, if you've got a shoe that keeps rubbing with your foot, the best thing to do is actually to take the shoe off for a while, let the foot heal, and then give it another go. If you leave the shoe on, it just keeps rubbing and rubbing and rubbing until it gets raw. And if you're in a relationship where it's just rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and there's maybe some level of abuse or or uh, marital unfaithfulness and, you know, it's just a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of baggage, it might be a good thing to have a an agreed temporary separation just for both of you to take a breath and heal. Uh, secondly, reconciliation may be possible and I would encourage you to seek support if this is your situation. Uh, seek good counselling, good pastoral care, good prayer support. Don't go to lots and lots of people, just, you know, close friends. So good pastoral care, good prayer, and then a really good psychologist, marriage counsellor, relationships counsellor. And we have a whole stack of people on a pastoral referral list at Bayside. So please do sing out to me or one of our other pastors and we can give you some advice there. You can just email connect at baysidechurch.com.au and we're happy to refer you. Uh, the third thing I'll say is divorce may be unavoidable. Some, some relationships, some marriages just get to the point of no return. And uh, there's so many irreconcilable differences that there's just kind of no hope for the marriage. And there are situations where one partner wants to make it work and the other partner just doesn't, and you can't force the issue. You can pray, but of course, human free will comes into play and God doesn't go against human free will. And uh, in, if that's the situation, then uh, remarriage is permissible. Uh, under under those conditions. And so with that in mind, just back to the question for a moment before I wrap this section up. Rob, although it's been nearly 30 years since my divorce, whenever I come to parts in the Bible about divorce, I struggle with it, although my decision wasn't easy. And I'm, I know it wasn't easy. It, it's not easy for anybody. I'm sure that you agonized over your decision. Maybe you tried to make it work for a long time and you just got to the point where you realised that it was futile. And so can I encourage you not to beat yourself up about it? And particularly as it's almost three decades ago, I would really encourage you just to relinquish 
those feelings of guilt. And every time when you're reading something in the Bible or whenever those guilt feelings start coming back, just say, Lord, I thank you for your grace and your kindness and your love, and I'm not going to receive those guilt feelings any longer. Um, If you made a mistake in getting divorced 30 years ago or whenever, just ask God's forgiveness. 1 John 1 9, it says that if we've committed a sin, we just need to confess our sin to God. The word confess there, by the way, means to agree with. Agree with God that what I've done is wrong. And then on the basis of that agreement, that confession of our sin, the Bible says that God forgives and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it's not something you have to do over and over again. It's just bring it to God, say, Lord, I made a mistake and I'm really sorry and I I invite your forgiveness and your cleansing into my life. And, And then from that point on, you have absolutely no reason whatsoever to feel guilty. In any case, I encourage you to rest in God's unchanging love, his unfailing love and his amazing grace. I believe that in Christ, all of our past is washed clean. And all of that includes any divorce, separation, broken relationships, all washed clean in Jesus Christ. That is really, really good news. I'm sure you'll agree with me. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. Can saved people lose their salvation? Can you unpack this? Uh, considering as well Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And so let's see how we go with this. I'm going to answer this in two parts, and I think I will do my very best to get through at least part one in the time that we have remaining. Can I lose my salvation? It's a very good question, and one which believe is asked out of one of the most profound human needs, and that is our need for security. All of us want to feel secure. When we don't feel secure, all of life becomes uh, jittery and out of sync. One of the interesting things about sheep, and Christians are often uh, compared to sheep in the Bible, one of the things that's interesting about sheep is that you cannot make a sheep lie down if there is any fear or uncertainty or insecurity. So a sheep will only lie down when it feels 100% safe. And so I think this is a great question because it really goes to the very core of our Christian experience, uh, our experience with Jesus, our need for security. There are various opinions that have been offered over the centuries in an answer. The French theologian and pastor John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s, and subsequent generations of his followers taught a doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. The Westminster Confession of Faith states it as follows. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end 
and be eternally saved. And so Calvin and uh, the Westminster Confession talk about the unconditional eternal security of the saints, those who follow Jesus Christ. Calvin died in 1964, but his teachings lived on. And in 1591, Jacobus Arminius, he was a Dutch theologian and pastor. He began a long process by which he attempted to reform Calvinism, uh, which is still called Reformed Theology to this day, a process which was continued by his followers after his death in 1609. Part of the attempted reformation of Calvin's teachings included his views on unconditional eternal security. Today, can I lose my, my salvation continues to be a question that Christians wrestle with and disagree over. So there are those who are Calvinists theologically who believe that a Christian cannot lose their salvation and those who are Arminianists in their uh, theology who believe that a Christian can. Okay, so I'm going to make uh, a few statements here that will hopefully help us answer this question. The first thing that I think is really important that we understand is this. Salvation is, is a process, not just an event. Salvation is a process. So I like going to the gym and I love doing Pilates. I do Pilates every week, once a week, and I try and go to the gym at least twice a week. When I joined a gym many, many years ago, it wasn't work out once and be okay for the rest of my life. I mean, I wish, right? I, I'm not once fit, always fit. It's something that I have to work on. Um, and that also goes with eating healthily and getting enough rest and all of those sorts of things as well. And so we understand that in any area of life, we need to exercise discipline and effort, not just to maintain, but also to grow and develop. And I believe it's the same with our salvation. When it comes to salvation, the Bible actually refers to it as being something that's happened, something that is happening, and something that will happen. So it's past, present, and future. Have a look at these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. And so we're saved as a past reality. But then along comes Philippians 2.12, also written by Paul. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, make this a serious, disciplined practice of life. So that's a daily, present process. And then in Romans 5 verse 9, he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Jesus? And so that's salvation future. Now, I just want to do a little detour right now on this verse because it's a very interesting verse. Um, you'll notice there that it says, save from God's wrath through Jesus. Uh, the word God in the original Greek is actually not in that verse at all. And so God or God's should have been bracketed or italicized to show that it's actually been added by the translators. They came along and they said, well, it, the wrath doesn't make any sense. It has to be someone's wrath, and so let's make it God's wrath. God is angry with sin, and we are saved 
from God's wrath by Jesus. And can I tell you that I used to believe that and I used to preach that and then I came across this verse and what it really is talking about and realised that I had been wrong in what I thought. So what I used to teach was something along, uh, along these lines. God is angry with people because they've sinned, but instead of punishing us, he punished his son instead. And that's just not right. God is a loving father. Would a, would a loving, a good parent do that? You know, it's like, well, you've done something wrong, but instead of punishing you, I'm going to whack my kid. That's not great parenting. And so this verse here in Romans 5, 9 actually should read this. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath through him? The wrath. It's likely that Paul was quoting from the wisdom of Solomon, uh, verse uh, chapter eighteen and verse twenty-three, and remembering that the wisdom of Solomon, which is an apocryphal book, now it's in the apocrypha in the Bible, at the Catholic Bible, that is. Um, but in the first century, it was viewed as inspired scripture, and so it's no wonder that Paul is probably quoting here from the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18 and, uh, and verse 43. For when the dead were now fallen down by heaps, one upon another, standing between, he stayed the wrath and parted the way to the living. That's what Paul is likely quoting here from the Wisdom of Solomon, 1823. I think I said 43 before, 1823. For when the dead were now fallen down by heaps, one upon another, standing between, he stayed the wrath. He stopped the wrath and parted the way to the living. So in this verse, death is personified as an angry enemy, a wrathful enemy that sought to destroy people. But he, talking of the Messiah, stayed the wrath or settled it and parted the way to life. And so in Romans 5, 9, the Apostle Paul is teaching that it was Jesus' death that saved us from the wrath of death, not the wrath of God. And then he justified us and brought us into life. He saved us. I think that's just wonderful. That, that really helped me, and I hope it helps you too, to see God as so much better than I ever thought he was. And so number one, salvation is a process, not just an event. Number two, salvation is about discipleship, not just a decision. In his Great Commission, Jesus instructs his followers to make disciples of all ethnos or all ethnicities, all people group. Make disciples, not just decisions. Now, I believe that there's often too much emphasis on getting people saved by making a decision. I've got to say the prayer. Now, don't get me wrong here. I think it's a, a, a point of prayer and and the making of decision is a wonderful thing. I did that back in 1977 as a 19-year-old. In fact, last Saturday was my 44th birthday of becoming a Christian and in Sydney in New South Wales in a little church on a Sunday night. I went forward and I prayed the prayer. I gave my life to Jesus and I wanted to follow him. Then I drifted away for about two years. Uh, but during that time, I constantly felt the tug of the Holy Spirit 
in my life. And then in 1979, as a 21-year-old, I came back to faith in Jesus. And I've been doing my best to follow him ever since. So it's good to make a decision. It's good to say a prayer, but that's not the end of it. It's a good start. But we are in danger of communicating to people that once they've said the prayer, they're saved and all is good. And now they can go on living a life as they've always lived. But becoming a disciple or a follower of Jesus is actually a lifelong commitment. One of the best books I've ever read on this, on Christian discipleship, was written by a guy called Eugene Peterson. He's given us the uh, message translation of the Bible. Uh, He's an amazing scholar. And he wrote a book quite a few years ago called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I think that's a great description of the Christian life. It's a long obedience in the same direction. I made a decision 44 years ago to follow Jesus and here I am 44 years later at the age of 63 and I'm still following Jesus Christ and I'm still as passionate for him today, in fact more so I would say than I was back in those days. The word disciple is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word, um, mathetes, and it means the mental effort needed to think something through the mental effort needed to think something through. Uh, it's, the, it's the Greek word that our English word mathematics comes from. So if you think about maths and, and you need to give a lot of mental effort to think things through to solve mathematical problems, uh, Paul and Jesus are saying if you want to be a disciple, then you've got to think it through. Um, you've got to count the cost. Jesus taught a couple of parables on this in Luke 14, the parable of the tower and the parable of war. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Well, of course you will. You don't start a tower and then go, I don't have enough money to finish this. Now we have half a tower and everyone's walking past and making fun of me as a result. He's talking about discipleship in these parables. So he said, think it through, count the cost, make sure you're going to follow through with the decision that you're about to make. And then he talks about war. He says, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one against it, coming against him with 20,000? Well, of course he will. He's going to think it through. So we need to make that kind of a choice. Uh, the risen Jesus Uh, we need to make that kind of a choice, should I say, and then the risen Jesus will continually intercede for us. So when we think it through, when we we, we say we're going to count the cost, yes, it's worth becoming a Christian. It's worth following Jesus Christ. I'm going to make a decision now that I'm going to follow through on for the rest of my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the promise of Jesus when you make that kind of a decision. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. To save completely, to save completely when we come to God through Jesus. At Jesus' second coming, the salvation he started in us Uh, through his life, death and resurrection, will finally be completed as he ushers us into eternity. And so let me get back to that question. Can I lose my salvation? My answer to this is it's highly unlikely. 
because we are saved by faith in Jesus. The only way that you could actually lose your salvation is to reverse the process, to deny Jesus and to say, you know what? I don't want to follow you, Jesus. I don't believe in you, Jesus. I don't believe that you're the Saviour and I'm walking away. I'm going to tell you that's nigh on impossible because <laughs> even in times of doubt and, uh, you know, times that are tough and you're struggling and all of that, the Holy Spirit is relentless and he just draws us back in again. So can I lose my salvation? I just think it's highly, highly unlikely for that to happen. I love... Um, Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. This is at the security that we have in Jesus. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth. So he's mentioning all of these things. And I, I think the apostle thinks maybe he's left something out. And so look at this. He says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you ever doubt your salvation, have a, have a read of those verses. Romans 8 verses 38, 39. Meditate on all of that. And Hebrews 13, 5. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I think of the prodigal son uh, Jesus spoke of uh, in his parable in Luke 15, the lost or the prodigal son. He was wayward, this guy, for a time, but eventually he returned to his father. But think about this. At no stage did this young man ever cease being his father's son. His straying broke fellowship, but not their relationship. While I believe a follower of Jesus should live a life that is worthy of and pleasing to God, God also understands and makes provision for our wanderings and our imperfections. That's the beauty of grace. Followers of Jesus should rest and relax in God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. And so can I lose my salvation? I think it's highly unlikely. Hey, let's just keep following Jesus together, shall we? We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is uploaded every Wednesday. If you love this podcast, please let other people know about it. And you can rate and view us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. In next week's episode of Digging Deeper, Pastor Rob will tackle the question, what did Jesus do in the time between his death and resurrection? We hope you can join us then.